0: listening to Rattle and Pedal, Diversion Thoughts on Marketing and Growing Professional Services Firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay.
1: So Jeff, before we start today's discussion on how clients choose a firm, I want to put you in a time machine real quick. You want to jump in a time machine with me? (laughs)
2: No. Oh,
1: is there a lot of room in this time machine? (laughs) There better be plenty of space or we're just not going to get along. (laughs) So, all right. I'm going to jump
2: in a time machine. You ready? Yes. Again? game? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So shut the door.
1: We shut the door and we're going to jump back eight years to 2012. And we're going to port ourselves to some random uh, event space in Chicago. And I'm sitting in this audience at an association of management consulting firms events. And there's a discussion brewing and some pompous windbag in the front row stands up and says, I think most professional services firms know why they're hired. They just don't know how clients hire them. I look at the guy. I'm like, man, that's a really astute observation. Who is that guy? So anyway, I seeked out, you know, again, the pompous windbag. And it turns out it's you. <laughs> and I, I still tell that story only because that's actually the, the, the moment our relationship began, essentially, as, as sort of peers and confidants. And I've written about that moment because I thought it was a really, really powerful statement and a very true statement in that in so many other sectors of the economy, you can observe how things are bought. You can observe buying behavior at retail, but you can't do that very well in professional services. So that's the topic of our conversation today. It's sort of the the topic that brought us together eight years ago. And so we're going to do it today with our listeners.
2: Wow. It's like an anniversary.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And I I was making fun of you, but it really is an astute comment. So to to echo back, we did a podcast earlier. I don't know when we did it, but on the four stages of buying that Rattleback has used for the last few years to frame sort of how clients go from never heard of of a firm to working with them. And I think what we're talking about today is, is a little bit narrower than those four stages, but sort of narrowing in somewhere between the phase of Hey, we have a short list of folks that we think we want to talk to, and now we're trying to get from short list to decision and a hire. I think that's really where we're trying to frame the topic, although we may bleed outside of that. So does that make sense?
2: That makes a lot of sense. And it's a very important topic. You know, even eight years ago, I think about that. I'm like, wow, I've thought about that so much. I think the whole content marketing buyer persona, buyer's journey stuff that's become such a fad, you know, is trying to answer that question. So it's almost a timeless topic. And I I really don't think anyone has the perfect answer to it because it is so dynamic. So I think this is going to be a fun conversation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. It's a timeless topic. It's always, I suppose it's always changing, but there's a handful of fundamentals that probably never go away. I mean, one of the I said this in the prep for the call, was to me, making the short list is entirely a function of expertise and experience. I mean, in at least these days. So there, there may be other things in there I'd love to hear you chime in. But, but the firms that end up in the short list for whatever the client's problem is have to operate at that intersection. The firm has to believe that the folks that they're inviting into a conversation have the combination of expertise they need exhibited through thought leadership and experience that, that they're you know delivering on that. That would be exhibited either through case stories or, you know, preliminary conversations or or also through thought leadership. So are there other things that are critical for a firm to be on the short list, beyond those two?
2: Wow. Yes. And you know, the short list, it's so funny. I really do think buyers want to get to a short list as fast as possible, right? Because in our society, there's so much choice and the choice is overwhelming and it can lead to inertia and analysis paralysis. So I think, you know, getting to the to the shortlist for the buyer is really important. So making it easy for them to get there is critical for marketers. And I think most marketers would probably be satisfied with making it to a short list, but I don't think they should be. (laughs) And the reason I say that is if you look at that initial gate, and we talked about this on the podcast, you know, there's the positioning, as you said, around the expertise and the results. Do you demonstrate a level of expertise and results that make it obvious that you could solve my problem? And does everyone have that capability? That's the easy answer. But I think what's happening in getting to that short list needs to go a step further. And that is, to position the face-to-face people of your firm to really begin to demonstrate and exploit the differentiation that, that happens there. This is an area that's often neglected in professional services because sales and marketing is bifurcated, right? It, we get you the lead, you take it from here or marketing is just sales support. They really just do what they're told versus positioning the people for the actual sales conversation. And to me, that's the critical part of short list. Because, you know, if if you're an accounting firm and it's a Fortune 500 company and you're the big four, you're on a short list already.
1: And there's nobody else ever, ever really going to get on that list usually.
2: Right. And if you're a strategy firm going for a Fortune 500 company, you're essentially on the short list already. So. Those that have the big brands that buyers trust, and I say trust, is they won't get fired for hiring Deloitte. They won't get fired for hiring BCG. That's all shortlists gets you, I think, is you know, a brand that's strong enough that it's safe for me to buy from this list. But I think there's lots of opportunity to make it to a short list, even if you don't have that brand that makes it safe for purchase, because not everyone is looking for safe. Some are looking for innovative, some are looking for atypical, and how you position to get on that short list needs to take that into account, but it also needs to set up a more meaningful conversation face-to-face. And we probably couldn't even cover what that takes in in a 20-minute podcast. But the bottom line is, don't just worry about getting to the shortlist. Get to the shortlist and be in the strongest position on the shortlist for your people to have the real conversation and the real decision. Because chances are, A decision may already be made by the time the shortlist is made. I
1: have two quick comments, and then I want to talk about that last thing you just said. Comment number one is, in many instances, it's worse than you described, right? Meaning that marketing and sales are bifurcated. And on top of that, the people that are actually going to deliver sometimes are sort of rarefied assets that aren't going to come forward into a sales conversation until much later when it's really serious. And we know that there's an opportunity here that's substantial and meets the needs of both parties, right? So there's experts behind the veil that are downstream. And we've talked about this in our thought leadership work for years, this idea of how do you make those experts visible without making them hold into early stage sales conversations that they don't want to have with unqualified prospects. And there's a lot of thinking we've put against that over the years. That's sort of kind of comment number one. Comment number two is to jump into something you said, which is really valuable. And we have a past client, soon to be, again, client that I've always liked the way the marketing lead at this, it's an architecture firm, thinks about this. And he says, hey, we have this practice that generates a lot of noise and activity. And when I first got here years ago, they're doing 250 proposals a year and their win rate is, is you know, minuscule. And he says, you know, my, my, my goal in, in the nine years I've been here was to be, to be way more selective. And he, I don't remember the numbers, but it was basically like, yeah, we pursued five pieces of business last year. So he went from like 250 to five. And he said, and we won three out of five, you know, so he's, he's like, I don't really care how many we pursue. I only care how many we win. And, and mm-hmm. so he spends mm-hmm. all of his energy on on really working with the practice leaders to get much more selective about the business that they pursue. So I, I don't want to dismiss how important and critical that that is and how, to me, the best marketers are taking control of that versus just sort of letting themselves get run over by the practice leaders who value activity, right? Who just feel like if I, mm-hmm. if I put my hat in the ring, eventually I'm gonna get a deal and it's a numbers game and, and it's not a numbers game in professional services. This is not you're not selling some transactional service like printing or, or media or whatever. So those are two quick comments. Then I wanted to jump into the third thing that you said. And now of course I've lost my train of thought on what it was. If I recall, you said a lot of times the decision may already have been made when the short list is developed. Was that
2: where we left off? Yeah, I I think oftentimes it is. Yeah.
1: Well, let's talk about that. So how do we deal with that? I mean, do we walk away from those deals when we have that sense? Is that the best thing to do? Just say, you know, I don't think we're the right fit. Do we lean into the noise and say, is there a way for us to flip, to flip the decision that's already been made? And how do we maybe identify when that's the case? How do we determine that so that we can make a thoughtful decision around that?
2: That is... A great question. a $100,000 question. And we touched on this a little with Brian Caffarelli in The Good Sale, Bad Sale. And I know your idol, maybe that's overstated, Blair Enns, talks about, you know, how we take control of the situation here. I think it's a it depends on the situation, right? Is the risk worth taking or not to pursue? Because professional services firms live and die by the billable hour. And you can invest a lot of money in something that you're just never going to move. But if you have capacity and you want to take the risk because there's some real upside, not just financially, but reputationally or perhaps positioning for future sales, it makes sense. And it probably makes a lot of sense if this is your ideal client. And that's why I emphasize ideal client so much is they're worth taking the risk. For. But if it's not your ideal client, I would walk away.
1: Let's just play a hypothetical here. Let's just assume that there is a short list and you're on it and the decision is still open, that the client mm-hmm. hasn't really taken a hard position on they're going to hire one firm or next or the other. And let's talk about the factors that influence the decision-making from that point forward. We're looking at three or four Folks, what are the factors? So the obvious factor is the one phrase that gets spanned around professional services marketing all the time. You know, clients hire people they like. And so there's that piece. There's likability, the sense that we can work together. This is when that comes in. I've made this argument for years that that statement is overly simplistic because it, it it applies to this one very narrow slice of the buying process, not the entire buying process. So all the learning to vetting stages we've talked about in, in the four stages podcast, likability is not a factor there, Right but it's a factor now. So likability is certainly one. Is this someone we want to work with? Let's talk about the other factors beyond that, that clients start thinking about when they're trying to whittle down from a handful of options to one option. And I have a thought, but I'll let you chime in first.
2: No, I want to hear your thoughts. So my
1: first thought is that so much of the learning process is driven by thought leadership and IP. So So many firms sell air. Some firms have more tangible outputs, architecture engineering firms, but a lot of consulting firms, they're just selling air. They're selling their expertise. And so thought leadership is the tangible demonstration of that expertise. And so to me, one of the critical things from getting to vetting hiring is showing that the thought leadership is actually applied through methodology and process. So it's one thing to say we've got, and we'll use the challenge of sales and examples when we've talked about through the years, we've got this philosophy on how B2B selling should happen now. And we've built a book on it and we've marketed a whole bunch of IP around this. That's another thing to actually translate that into a real methodology for how we apply that in your business. And a lot of times what we see is that those two things are, to your point of marketing sales being disconnected, they're not connected. So the thought leadership creates the interest, but then the solution design that's put forth isn't a logical extension from the thought leadership. It's just another solution. And here's how we do audit, but it doesn't map to what was presented. So that's one thing that comes to mind. And that's sort of the seamless customer experience that you've talked about, this notion that, oh. Is this thing that I bought into when I was learning about your firm, is it real? Do you actually do that? Or is it just window dressing to market the firm and get me to the table? My sense is buyers are absolutely studying that piece to figure out if that's if it's real or false.
2: Hmm. I do think buyers want that. I do think it is important. I don't know how important it is at this stage. I think it's really important when you're getting ready to activate service delivery so that everybody's on the same page and they have the confidence of a methodology that it's going to get executed. At this point where you're trying to decide, and and maybe I'm blending another stage in there. I I am blending another stage in there. But high level, yes. Here's how we think about it. They want to know what your point of view is, and they want to see where this is played out. In a relevant way for them, so I agree with you. I just think it's a different degree. Well,
1: it depends a little bit on where they are in their journey, right? And I'll and I'll you know you mentioned Mm -hmm. Blair ends, and I've Blair's influenced my thinking a lot on this. But he talks about selling as change management, and one of the, the changes that the buyer is going through. So they have they have this notion of they have a fuzzy vision of what they want, and they first need to be inspired that that vision can be real. And so that's the Mm -hmm. first thing that has to happen. Mm -hmm. Ideally, that happens in the learning stage before the conversation begins. But after the conversation begins, it might still be happening. And so to your point, that notion that we've mapped IP to solution there is not valuable because they still need to be inspired. Now, once they're inspired and bought into the future vision, now they get scared. They get scared and they think about all the risks and all the pitfalls and their mind escalates the potential downsides. And de emphasizes all the potential upsides. And that's when seeing process methodology and solution design against IP is so critical because that's when you're reassuring intent. Mm -hmm. You're saying to them, no, it's going to be okay. All those fears you have are not as scary as you think, because we've designed for them. So there, there is probably a mushy zone between inspiration and reassurance that's somewhere between vetting and discussing and hiring. And it's probably not the same every time, but that's, it's, 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 you know, so I guess I, in a very long winded way, I agree (laughs) 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 that it's probably gray, uh, the value of that.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, but it's so critical. It's, it's, it's a critical thing for marketers and business development people to understand when and where does a process or methodology play. And in my experience, process and methodology is more important to the seller than it is to the buyer. Yes, the buyer wants to check off that there's some rigor behind this intangible. The one thing that annoys me as a buyer, but I know by that buyers are annoyed by, is having to sit through an explanation of some firm's methodology. Buyers just don't care. They want to talk about themselves. So the degree you're going to fold in a methodology, it should be folded into a dialogue with the client about the problems they're having or the aspirations they hope to achieve and to help them understand. And you kind of alluded to this uh, just a second ago about your understanding of their issue, the problems that they could run into and how they are going to be addressed in your methodology. For example, you're going to say, hey, when we get ready to sign this contract, you know, procurement's going to come in and procurement's going to have this type of, of issue with it. And we aren't even to client service delivery. We're pointing out the types of issues that they're going to run into no matter what vendor they choose. But we understand those issues and we're going to help you deal with them on the front end.
0: You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff.
1: I agree with you except you jumped around the buying cycle a little bit too much for me. So there was a stage in there where you you were kind of <laughs> you were kind of implying that we're at an early stage and and we that the firm don't really fully understand the client's, you know, problem and hence we're ramming methodology down their throat and that I don't think that's ever a good thing. So so agree with you there that that's not a good that's not something that should happen. But then you also tossed in, you know, discussions about Pitfalls you're going to face post contract with procurement or whatever, and that's very late, right? That's that's that to me is decision is locked in. Now we're talking about how we get things off the ground, and then that logically, yes, the client has tons of those concerns and questions that they face. So I, I think conceptually, you, you know, again, if we're talking shortlist to decision, what are the factors there? like is one. Potentially methodology and process, probably later on on that coin. What else factors in here? What are the other things that go into the buyer's mind about who we're going to hire?
2: What I was alluding to there, I'm talking very much before contract or signing. The two things I think are important are, one, being helpful. Help me make a smart buying decision. The firm that looks beyond just itself and getting this sale and tries to help me make the best decision for me as a buyer from that short list. And I would argue that begins at the very beginning of the buying cycle and is partly what I was alluding to about how we position, you know, ahead of the, the short list, but be helpful for me or helpful to me in terms of not just solving my problem, but negotiating a complex sale because when we're in the room with a given client, it's not going to be a single buyer in the room. No complex sale ever it's gonna be is. 11, it's going to so, be
1: 11.2, according to Gartner right now. <laughs> and it was 6.8, seven years ago. So <laughs> I don't know if those numbers, it's, right. those are, no. those are pretty close to accurate to what they say, you know? So anyway, keep going.
2: Right. So, so, I mean, there are going to be people in the room that don't want your solution, There are going to be people in the room who don't want an external solution. There's going to be people in the room who don't even see a problem. And those all have to reconcile to get to some solution for the economic buyer. So- we have to position our solutions with each one of those people and what their buying criteria, where they're they're coming from. So it's never monolithic. It's very complex, and this is why business developers make lots of money is that they have to manage all of these different personalities and agendas going on in the room. and being helpful in helping those key people achieve you know their hidden agendas, or not so hidden agendas, is really relevant. So I think having a mindset of being helpful is critical, and helpfulness comes in in many different ways. One is an understanding of the industry or the the issue and, and your expertise in delivering your results. but there's also a lot of helpfulness about other issues within the company, buying company.
1: I totally agree with you. In a way, the notion of being helpful, it's almost a, a cultural issue that cuts across the entire buying journey, right? I mean, a, a firm should have that hardwired into their DNA that that's sort of why they're doing the things they're doing. That's why they market. That's why they produce that leadership is to help the client. And they're trying to help them through the sale. You know, the whole disposition of delivery should be about you know helping the client move forward to a Place of advantage, and the most successful firms probably thread that all the way through.
2: You might be surprised how <laughs> so, I many people do that. So, I guess because we're we're probably running short on time, I I can hear Jason Malecki's voice in my head. We need to move to wrap up.
1: Okay, do the obvious one because because I don't I don't okay. know that I agree with you there. I've, most firms I've dealt with have have a pretty strong client-oriented disposition, at least philosophically, that it may, it, may, it may be difficult for them to deliver on because they, they face so many short-term pressures you know, to make sales targets and all these other things that get in the way. But deep at its core, most people I've ever dealt with in professional services fundamentally want to be helpful to their clients at every point. Now, there may, there may be all kinds of things that block that from happening, to your point. I think philosophically, that's a very true statement. What was the obvious one? Let's get to the obvious one because we are running out of time. And my, my time machine won't work now. It only worked at the beginning. <laughs> it's still in beta. It's, 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 right. it's, it's, it's so it's a one product right now.
2: Okay, when we're done recording, I want you to go back to that list of your clients that you just assessed about being helpful, and reassess based on how many of those firms would actually recommend one of their competitors to a buyer when their firm was not the best fit. Maybe they were 60% fit. And then we can have a conversation about that. And I think most firms, they figure I'm 50 or 60% there. I'm all the way, I'm all the way in on
1: yes, but but I would also argue that most of that is lack of doing that is hubris. It's a belief that our our solution is always superior than our competitors' solution. (laughs) I would say most firms fall into that gap. That they see very rare instances where your competitor's solution is ever better. Now, will they look for the perfect match? Yes. Will they say, well, our solution isn't the right fit at all because that's not in our wheelhouse. You should go over there. But if they, if, if they think it's expertise they have, they're never going to acknowledge that their expertise isn't as good as the, you know, their peer, their competitive peer firm, even if it is. And they may not even know. So anyway, let's get to the obvious one because we're out of time. So
2: that's a great segue to the obvious one. And the obvious one is trust. Do I trust you? And I'm smart enough as a buyer to know when your firm is not a good fit and you're reaching in a way that maybe you shouldn't and it's going to erode trust. Whereas saying, you know, we're not really a good fit here. You know, you might want to select, you know, this person or that person because they're really good at that. and that's just one element of the trust building process at this point going back to our earlier discussion about methodologies and and process if consultants come in and they want to talk about methodology and process and try to squeeze me as a buyer into it they're going to lose credibility and i am not going to trust them because i feel like they're not listening to me they're not hearing me they're not thinking through what makes me special. Most firms don't do that. They want to get in there. I'm on a short list. Let's practice our presentation and, you know, who's going to deliver our process slides and who's going to talk about the proposal or, you know, who's going to talk about the team we're going to put on it. I really don't think clients care about that on the short list. What they're trying to assess is who's going to lead this and do they really understand me? Have they demonstrated that? And do I trust them?
1: I think trust is, is the macro, you know, thing you're trying to achieve, really, to get from shortlist to hire Is you're trying to earn the client's trust at this point. And the things you can use to build their trust are, like you said, being helpful being likable to some extent, whatever that, whatever we call that, you can use solution design and process and methodology. I think you probably got a little bit overhung up on the notion of process and methodology in my comments on that, that it's not necessarily about, you know, the methodology. It's more just about that. Is there a relationship between the solution we're going to deliver and the IP that you came in the door on? And if there's not, then you've eroded my trust. And in your particular case, you know, overly rigid methodologies erodes your trust. But in other clients' cases, rigid methodologies build their trust. I mean, methodologies were built to create confidence and trust at the end of the buying process. So to your point of being helpful, I guess, maybe at the end of the day, the key to getting from shortlist to close is really all about active listening and being client-centric and trying to understand the people in the room and what are their decision-making priorities to the best of your ability and trying to put forward the best solution on their behalf. And keeping that client centric vision throughout the whole thing and not letting yourself fall victim to your process, your pitch deck, your you know us 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 us. So I don't know if we found new ground here or not, but I do agree that trust is the central goal in this window, but what creates trust for one client or the next is probably different every single time.
2: Yes, and where does it begin? because we narrowed this down to two stages and it begins long before that because the one thing i just pounded into you know the cultures of the firms i worked for and my clients is that clients understand this one thing how you sell me is how you serve me in each interaction that they're having from that marketing and sales interaction they're projecting forward about what it's going to be like to be an engagement with you. Kind of like dating, right? <laughs> you on that first date, you, know, you have this sitting across the table and the other person has this little piccadillo and you're like, hmm, do I like that? Or is that going to annoy me 30 years from now? <laughs> yeah, That's the way human beings are made.
1: All right, we're going to take it to a wrap. I, I, I like that closing thought, how you sell me is how you'll serve me. And I think it's a good place to end. So it's a good way to think about it.
0: Until next time, I'll see you in the time machine. <laughs>